Indeed, Father, we do pray this morning that you would speak to us in the proclamation of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come to the end of a long journey, Romans chapter 8. Chances are, chances are very good, in fact, that we'll begin chapter 9 next week. We've been on this road since January 2nd, I believe, of last year. And uh, with a few breaks for other concerns, but we are, as I've said in Romans chapter 8, for one more installment in this series on the great epistle of Paul to the Roman church of the first century. I'll read eight verses this morning, or nine verses, I suppose. Verse 31 to the end of the chapter. So read with me once again these verses. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake, O Lord, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. O Father, in Jesus' name, make these verses ever more true in our sight, O Lord. Give us the faith to rely on them all our days until our last hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul, who is talking, of course, about the gospel all throughout these eight chapters, comes to this chapter to assure us of a number of things. And he makes these arguments, one built on the other. And in this last phase, he gives us these rhetorical questions, one after the other. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall bring a charge against us? Who is he who condemns us? And the answer to all of them is there's no one who can do these things. There's no one who can charge us effectually. People charge us all day long. I'll speak on that. But no one can condemn us because it's Christ who died. And so he builds this great argument. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? I know that in tribulation sometimes we may feel like we're separated from the love of Christ. And I will presume that some of you have been there. How about distress? That's a pretty wide term, isn't it? Shall distress? Who doesn't have stress in their lives? Who isn't distressed about one thing or the other? Take a moment And sit down and go before the Lord and recognize that the distress of the moment is your problem. But remember what I've always taught you. Your problem is never your problem. How you handle your problem is your problem. And bring it to the Lord. Because you're not separated from God in these times. Though it may seem like it. How about persecution? Friends, it seems to me for the first time in my life that I'm really seeing real persecution of the church in our day. And I'll speak on that to some extent. How about famine? I have to say I haven't experienced famine, but I can imagine feeling like the most important thing to you would be your next meal in certain times, in certain places, under certain circumstances, in certain cultures or times in history. Famine is a great scourge throughout history. Or nakedness which reminds me of homelessness, much of which we see today in our land. Or peril, or sword, as it is written, and he goes to the psalm, 
For your sake, O Lord, we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. It is as if the apostle is asking whether or not we shall prevail with our assurance of our salvation intact in the wake of nearly every earthly calamity that you could imagine could rise up against us. Can we even endure, we might ask, in tribulation? Can we even survive? Can we, of our own strength, even with the strength of faith in our hearts, come out the other side of earthly persecution and tribulation with our faith and our faculties intact? Will our faith carry us through to the glorious end that he has assured us is ours as God's own beloved elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Since it is God who justifies. Who's he who condemns since it's Christ who died? Christ is the great judge. If he has exonerated you, you cannot be condemned. The Lord has spoken. He's at the right hand of God and he's making intercession for us. Like an advocate, friends. Like a lawyer. Well, let me say, I I would suggest to you that there are many voices today who would bring a charge against the church. There are many voices. There are many who have seen us fail in our task of living for God. Particularly historically, you can look back and see failures of the church of great magnitude. There are some who are close to us in this world who will oppose us for our faith, and there are some who are close to us in this world that exist invisibly all around us that will bring a charge. Surely there is Satan, the devil, who will bring a charge. He's not shy about it. Surely he'll try to convince us that our faith is a futile thing. Have you had these voices in your head? Have you ever experienced these things? Such forces will try to convince us of the folly of our religion, of the futility of our faith. There are those who insist that to have faith you must jettison intelligence. It's so obvious to them that we can't hold on to either until the end, especially with all the powers and principalities in the heavenly places trying to bring us down. We read, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. There are great forces against us to rob us of assurance. And let me tell you, those forces can be successful in robbing us of assurance, but they cannot be successful of robbing us from our salvation. Friends, you can go to heaven happy or sad. (laughs) You can go assured that you're going there or doubting all the way. But if you're God's elect and you've bowed the knee before Christ the Lord, then no one can condemn you. For it's Christ who's lifted you up. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities. We wrestle against powers, against rulers of the darkness. And rulers of the darkness like to stay in darkness. They hide from the light, John wrote, because their deeds are evil. The darkness of this age, the spiritual wickedness of our age. There are spiritual hosts, that means armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are many who will lay a charge against God's elect. According to our apostle, it will all fall to dust. Friends, the first assault against your assurance of your salvation is doubt. Doubt is the devil's foothold. People say to me, why do you teach so much history and so much doctrine when you're teaching us? Why do you teach so much? It's because the devil is a sophisticated foe, and he is aware of all these things. So we ought to be aware. And we go along marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking, as he said, and did not know that the flood was about to come. Friends, we ought to live our lives as though the flood's about to come, so that when it comes, we hold on to our assurance and go triumphantly before the forces of darkness in the heavenly places in Christ. We have nothing to fear from them. The first assault is always doubt. Look out for it. When you start to doubt, you go back to the word. In fact, go back to Romans chapter 8. Remember the first assault in all of history? The serpent asked the question of the woman, has God indeed said what you think he said? Put a little doubt in your mind. 
I wonder if he actually said it. You know, he just said it. He didn't really emphasize it. He didn't bang on the table and say, don't eat of the tree. Maybe he didn't mean it. I mean, doubt can come in in so many ways. And let me tell you, the devil is a sophisticated foe. He's difficult to outsmart, but he can be outtalked. Did he really say you shall not eat? And he followed up with, you shall not surely die. The death of faith will always begin with a stealthy, doubt-inducing conversation. It begins by becoming self-centered, and what I mean by that is man-centered. We tend to be man-centered in our view of things, as though our battle against the spiritual hosts of darkness is a battle that we fight in our own strength, as though we, don't, as though we fight it in our own armor, and we don't wear the armor of God through the battle. The writers of the New Testament faced it themselves continually. You know, all of the 12 apostles, except for John, were persecuted to death. It seems John lived until his old age, at least legend tells us. And they wrote of it so that we would not be surprised when spiritual opposition happens. So James wrote this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Friends, so much for faith, squelching intelligence. Wisdom is from God as faith is from God. Both are from God, and you can have both in one vessel. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. In other words, not doubting the source. God is the source of the wisdom you're seeking. Don't doubt that when you ask that he can come up with the answer. He can. He not only can, he's had men write it down. Forty-some-odd authors over 1,600 years, over 66 books. Ask in faith with no doubting. Why? Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Driven and tossed by the wind. Tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, the apostle said to the Ephesians. Let not that man, that doubter, that tossed and driven man, think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Friends, wisdom and faith are part of the same package. Faith does not require that you check your intellect at the door and start believing in every screwball cultic notion that passes for faith today. And sadly, there are many of them. I've said it often enough, and I still hold to it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I made that up. Do you like it? Yeah, I made it up. Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. No, actually, it's from the Bible. I don't know where, but I'm pretty sure it's in there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but I've got one for you. Atheism is the beginning of insanity. Look at the atheists today and the things that these people believe. There are forces all about us today to rob us of our assurance. Friends, those forces can't rob you of what Christ gave you. But if you won't look into it, if you won't apply yourself to it, if you won't go to the Lord, and that means go to the Word, don't go to the Lord and expect a thunderbolt to enlighten you. Maybe it will. Try it. I've done that thing in days of old where you say, Oh, Lord, speak to me, and you turn the page and you go like this, (laughs) and you wreck Joe's microphone. And you go like this, and, and it was the right thing. <laughs> I can't tell you that that's a reliable way of, of doing it. Sometimes you have to do a little work and apply yourself. There are gifts of the Spirit all around you. That's the strength of the church. That's the reason for the church. So that when you do have doubts, you can go to someone who already dealt with those doubts and put them away long ago. There's so many things that pass for faith today, and there are forces all about us to rob us of our assurance. And it seems to me that the church is being specifically targeted today for assaults against our resolve to what? Stand on the same moral ground that our martyred ancestors stood on. Friends, let me tell you something. Christian morality is being more and more marginalized. Let me tell you something. I said something to you years ago when... Massachusetts came out with a a bill that we had to have unisexual bathrooms in the church as a local congresswoman who is a believer told me that they're putting this through and you'll have to do it. I said, I'll tell you when I'll do it. I will do it when the mosques do it. That's like saying, 
I have no intention of ever doing it. And you know, there's a whole Islamic movement today angry at wokeism in America because it is standing against every moral structure that they believe in. So let them fight our battle with us on that front. Friends, we're not going to give up the moral ground that our martyred ancestor died on. We're still monogamous. One man, one woman for one lifetime. Life is precious from the moment of conception. All of these things. You looked upon my unformed substance, O Lord. You foreknew me before the foundation of the world. And we're wondering if life begins at conception. There are forces about us today to rob us of all these things. What Paul warns against here, he also warned elsewhere, and so he wrote of it to the church of Corinth as well. He wrote these words, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, listen to this, casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. Your assurance or lack of it is a battle for what you know. For casting down arguments against your insurance. Assurance, forgive me. Casting down arguments against every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bring every thought. That sounds intellectual to me. Bring every thought into captivity, to the obedience of Christ. Peter wrote it this way, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's a prowler out there seeking to rob you of your assurance. Did the Lord Jesus really affect a change in you, he'll ask? I don't see a change. Are you sure you're changed? He'll then begin to present the evidence against you. Where has your faith been all this time to keep you on the right path? There's always an accuser to show us where we've we've been hypocritical in our testimony. Have you not put so many other things in the place of Christ in your life? The voices will ask. It will be his first task to show us to ourselves as the fleshy hypocrites that we all are. He sees it as a simple task to bring us down from our heavenly high horse to our lowly earthly reality. Where was your love of God? Where was your reliance on God when the hardship set in? Have you ever panicked and felt abandoned in a hardship? Let me make it easy for you. I have. Somewhere in me. I knew I was not abandoned, but boy, did it feel like it. You know, the Puritans have a word for that. They call it desertions. Those times when it seems like God leaves you to yourself. Maybe it's a sort of Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where was your God in your trial? Did you resort to anger against the Lord for his treatment of you? The voices will ask. Yes, you know, I was angry at God, you might have to admit. And then he might say, you see... You really hate him too. Maybe your hardship was God's way of showing his displeasure of you, the voice might ask. You think you've been blessed? You think you've been special to God? Look at the lives of your friends and acquaintances all around you and see that they far surpass you in earthly blessings. There are several psalms where the psalmist whines about how the ungodly are so blessed. They all have More things than you. The things that everyone knows are the tokens of a loving father. How is he your father and he's left you bereft of basic things? Paul talked of famine, of nakedness. Those are basic things, friends. Why have you been left out? Why are you feeling guilty for doing those same things that your worldly friends do without a single tinge of regret or guilty conscience? They're the ones who are free. You're in a prison of faith, these voices will say to you. You tithed faithfully to the church of Christ. For what? To make you all the poorer? Where's the evidence of a return for your investment? Who shall bring a charge? Are you kidding me, he'll ask. 
Fakers like you are so easy to charge with foolishness and hypocrisy, I'm surprised everyone doesn't bring a charge. It's hard to hold on to assurance with all these forces against you. Since the very beginning of the Christian era, the devil and his cohorts have been bringing charges against the people of God. Remember this one? The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Friends, this goes back, maybe the oldest book in the Bible. And already, the great man of faith is being attacked by unseen forces that he may or may not know even exist. There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and understanding man who fears God and shuns evil. And still, the Lord says, he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And what does the voice say? What does the adversary say? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Have you blessed the work of his hands? But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and surely he'll curse you to your face. Came close, but he didn't do it. Do we only have assurance? Do we only have joy in the Lord in the good times? James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. See how the devil knows the weaknesses of our flesh? See how he knows how we fear loss of any kind? We fear death. We know that Job, though he was debated by some of the most godly theological scholars of his day, that even his wife lost faith in God and told him to curse God and die, we know, Joseph, we know Job famously endured. Is your faith like Job's, then, the devil will ask, once you've given him this part of the sermon? Yeah, but oh, that's great for Job, but is your faith like Job's? And don't think you have to come face to face, face with Satan to be challenged in this way. It is done every day to every believer by some cynical soul who despises Christ and Christianity. There are so many who hate us for Christ's sake. There are so many all around us to try to convince us that we're deceived and our faith is in vain. We are mere men and women, and the evidence of God's wrath is upon us in the same way that it is upon them. They don't see us as special. And if they get a glimpse of the fact that you're special to God, they'll try to tear that down. He has left you to yourself, they will argue. And if there's no hope for me, then there's no hope for you. I heard an atheist say the other day, as though it was a given, we die, we're eaten by worms. And that's the end. A very famous atheist who I'll not mention by name. Ask me afterwards. I would have said to him, you know, it's interesting to me. You're sitting here before me. You're, say, 180 pounds. You're a good, strong, healthy man. All your functions and faculties are working. And in the next second, if you were to die, you would weigh the same, and you would be the same exact chemical and biological makeup that you were the second before when you were sitting there giving me stupid arguments about faith. You're the exact same material being. So what happens? There's no spirit. It's just all worms after that. It's almost an insane, absurd thought. You know, I was on my deathbed, as you know, many years ago, 2006. The Christians came in. They were all in there praying. The pastor Dan would get better. And they operated on me four times in 24 hours. And they couldn't make it work. It was a heart operation. And there was a tube, and the blood was coming out, and the, the best surgeon in the world couldn't fix it. And he came out, and his name was Sheman, and he was a Jewish agnostic man of science. And he came out to all of you who were there, John was there, and he said, I hope you're praying because I can't do anything else. That was my Jewish agnostic surgeon, and the blood stopped. Now, I believe in healing from God, just to make a point sometimes to the Jewish agnostic. Jesus said the same thing. He said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus said that to his disciples. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures will be saved. 
So when these conversations come into your path and enter into your head, when trials come and keep you from worship services because you're sick of seeing other people blessed and you're not, in your own opinion, you may become so weary of seeing the shiny faces of other pretenders, other deceived optimists who believe that for all their hardships and tribulation that God is on their side. Oh, what fools these mortals be. And for all the taunting that a guilty conscience and taunting relatives and pretentious worldly pundits can muster, you come to the realization that your faith was never in your hand in the first place. Remember that we have already been promised that the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. We have the Spirit to help us in those times. We're not in the battle alone, and the Spirit is God. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, Paul wrote in this chapter, but the Spirit knows, and he makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So when we're down here uttering all our worldly groanings, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us at the throne of grace, asking for the things we should have been asking for and weren't. And we're going to be blessed for those. How could the Holy Spirit pray to God and not get an answer? It's not a long waiting line there in the Trinity. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. You know, people have asked me, do you have the faith to die for Christ? You know, suppose you were a martyr being put to the stake, like we do our reenactments at the Reformation Fair. You're going before the beheader's axe or to the, the pyre for burning for your heresy or your blasphemy. Do you have the faith to die as so many of those died triumphantly? And my answer is, well, I don't know. I don't know if I have the faith to die joyfully like they do. But I'll know in that hour. And the Holy Spirit will come to me in that hour. It will be given to you in that hour, Jesus said. I don't have to know now what I'll do in something that I'm not faced with. We sort of live hour to hour. The writer of Hebrews says it with even greater emphasis. We read, therefore, he's also able able to save to the uttermost. I don't know if you can be saved more than to the uttermost. Save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When the devil says to you, you're not saved, look at you, you hypocrite, say, I am saved to the uttermost. And the Spirit is before God interceding for me right now, telling him to get you off my back. It's the very function and definition of a priest, friend, to intercede between man and God. But we have an even greater priest, Ours is the high priest of heaven who's the one of three voices that can make appeals directly to the Godhead. So in all this agonizing internal conversation, through every devilish imagination, against each onslaught of faith hatred and from a sin-cursed and dying world, we were never the custodians of our souls to begin with. We were in the hand of God. But we have to know a little bit about his word in order to be certain of that. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And I want to say to you, this foreknew stuff, okay, that's not ESP. That's not God going into a trance, looking down the future, saying, I see Brenda receiving me out there, I'm going to choose her. That's, that so robs the glory and sovereignty of God to think of foreknowledge that way. Foreknowledge is love. That's all it is. The only reason the four is there, it means he loved you before he made you. Now, I don't know how he does that, but it, it, that's what he does. That's what God can do. He loved you before he made you. He knew you. Like when Cain knew his wife or Adam knew Eve, he had this intimate love relationship with the elect. That's what foreknowledge is. It's not, let me take a look now and see how big the church will be a year from now. He already knows whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We've come so far with the Lord, friends, 
That's why we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And it's God who'll bring us all the way from whom he justified, for whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so it was God who conceived us in eternity past. It was God who first loved us by his blessed foreknowledge. It was God who justified us. It was God who sanctified us, and it was God who glorified us. And note the tense. It was God who glorified us. Not God who will glorify us at some undetermined time in the future, but rather it is he, God, who already glorified us in the prophetic future. You see, eternity is this tapestry that God and the angels wove. All right? It's this tapestry. We already know the end from the beginning. He can already call you glorified even though you're not there yet. That's how foreknowledge works. That's how predestination works. You're already glorified in the prophetic future. That's why Paul can say those who he justified, and you're justified now, he also glorified. He didn't even say would be glorified. Our ultimate arrival on the shores of our heavenly eternity is guaranteed. It's so certain that the Lord invented a verb tense that only he can use. I've talked about the verb tense, the blessed aorist tense. It speaks of things to come as though they already existed, the aorist tense. Not because they might come about, not because they are hoped for, but because they are promised. And we know with Abraham that he who promised is also able to deliver. Remember from chapter 4 that it is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which are not as though they were. All things work together for good. Should we have thought for a moment that the all things to which the apostle refers would only be all the good things, the trial, the tribulation, the failure, the doubt, the sin that you presently suffer are all part of the all things. If everything that worked together for good was already good things, he wouldn't have said it. It would have been redundant. The Holy Spirit's referring to all those things, those distresses, those persecutions, those famine, the nakedness, the sword. He's referring to all things. And just as the accuser is causing you to doubt what Paul has determined for you to be assured of, we're given this great thunderbolt. In all things, we're more than conquerors. We don't just get by. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. What do you think this more than conquerors business is all about? I'm going to ask you to be ever mindful when you're reading the Bible of words and tenses of words. You know what those are? Tenses. It's either, hap- it's either already happened or it's happening now or it's happening in the future. Right? Those are tenses. God communi- communicated himself through language. It's a great thing, language. He handpicked the languages that he thought best suited to our assurance. Primarily, we have Greek and Hebrew, right? Sorry, English isn't one of those. Friends, he gave us language to know his mind, and language comes with words. Nouns come in genders. Verbs come in tenses. So first consider that our ultimate end is not a function of our love for Christ. It's a function of his love for us. We are more than conquerors, not because we loved Christ, but because he loved us. If it wasn't so, he would have used another tense. We're more than conquerors because he loved us. God was much too wise to entrust our eternal outcome to fickle, finite creatures like us. And so when the thoughts come, and when the doubts come, and when the trials of the moment present themselves as somehow the self-proclaimed final arbiters of faith, consider this, it is not we who delivered ourselves, it's Christ who delivers us to God. We can't fail unless God fails. Paul calls us God's elect. I like that nickname. I like the nickname elect. And, not, and we're not called the elect because we elected him, but because he elects us. We're the elect. He's the elector. He's the electoral college. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry for some of you, the electrical college. Peter addressed the saints in this way. He said, to the elect, 
according to the foreknowledge of God who are kept by the power of God. You're elect by the foreknowledge of God and you're kept by the power of God. What do you think? He, he, he foreknew you and predestined you and then finally when he called you and you knew about him, he gave you up? It's still God working in you. It's the same force of his being. You're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But he adds a warning not to despair when the accuser comes. And so he writes this. Peter writes, In this greatly rejoice. Well, who wouldn't? (laughs) You're kept by the power of God. You're going all the way to glory. Hallelujah. Who wouldn't be glad? But he says, but now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved with various trials. It's like, you had to throw that in. That the genuineness of your faith may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Friends, the genuineness of your faith is not a show you put on for God. It's a show that God puts on in you for you. You're already predestined. You're not going anywhere. But he wants you to develop your faith by delving into the promises of God. You may be found of the praise, the honor, the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ who having not seen you love. He said to Thomas, you've seen me. You've touched the wounds. You've seen me and you believed. Blessed are you. But more blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's you and me. Though now you do not see him, Peter writes, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You already have the salvation of your souls. Remember in those difficult moments that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that from the series? Probably a few months ago, Romans chapter 5. Remember that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Remember that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he gave us this passage. For if we have been united together in the likeness of of his death, certainly also we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Friends, the trials that you undergo are the likeness of his death. And if you're in him in death, the apostle considers it academic that you'll be with him in life. He rose from the dead. You died the same death he did, and you'll rise with him. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Friends, that sin in your life that you refuse to give up, you have dominion over that. It seems like it has dominion over you. And it gives you a joy that will fade away. Sin has joy for a season. Put it away and know the joy of the Lord. He who has died has been freed from sin, he writes. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And remember this word, reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So when someone says to you, you broke the law of God, you say, I'm not under that law. I'm dead to that law. Christ died to free me from that law. I'm under grace. I'm under the grace of Christ. I don't measure up to laws. Rather than being the plaything of the accusers of this world, put away the obvious sins that you're being accused of. Put those away. Put away the fornication. God decided we should be married. Not that we should have the pleasures of a married man before we're married. You know, I had someone laugh at me about that just recently. I have a son. He has a girlfriend. We love them. And they live in the same city. And they live in different apartments. And it's an expensive city. And I get the, it'll be a lot cheaper if they just live together. We know. We know how to add. But we have another standard to fulfill. And he was a little amazed. A good friend of mine, some of you know, he was a little amazed that, wow, you, you guys really have standards. And I said, yeah, and I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm his father. He's his own man of faith. He's going to do what he wants to do. They want to cohabitate. That's their business. But a man of faith looks at that for the sin that it is and resists it. And it doesn't have dominion over you. 
You have dominion over it. And so rather than be the plaything of the accusers of this world, put away the sin that you're now living in. You have power over it. What did James write? Resist the devil and he will flee. He doesn't like to be resisted too long. Resist the devil and he will flee. And no, you don't have to hold up two sticks. And just resist him. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What does all that mean? Turn joy to gloom and laughter to sadness or mourning. What he's saying, friends, is exchange the false joys of sin for the real and lasting joys of faith and obedience to Christ. Sinful joys only pretend to be powerful. But you're mighty in God to cast down arguments, to pull down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Since we are more than conquerors, we can speak of being in the battle. Conquerors, battle, right? I can tell you from long experience that my days have been full of joy except for the ones that have not been. My years have been full of productive effort, except where I was foolish and made decisions apart from sound counsel. But I want to tell you, I've gone to the Lord many times. And um, I've said many times of people, maybe we should help so-and-so. And we always have to consider, well, he got himself in that trouble himself, should get out. You know, I've said so many times to God, I know I got myself in this trouble, but I would really be grateful, Lord, if you'd just get me out of it. And teach me how not to get into it again. That would be nice part of the program too. He's brought me out of so, so many self-inflicted problems and healed so many self-inflicted wounds I can't even count them. I can tell you that though my days have been filled with joy, they have been filled also with strife and sweat and trial and turmoil. Every day has been a battle, but I learned many years ago that the battle is not mine to fight alone. The battle is the Lord's. And so Paul says... For I am persuaded, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, which are spirits, nor powers, which are also spirits, right? Principalities are the area that a prince rules. That's a principality. A kingdom, a king rules, a principality, a prince rules, right? Principalities, powers, things present nor things to come. In other words... He can't even think up something new to afflict you with that we haven't already covered. Nor height, nor depth. Those are astrological references. He's saying anything in this universe, the stars above and the dirt beneath our feet, anything high, anything low, nothing. No created thing, which is everything except God, right? How could a created thing really stand against its creator? None of it shall be able to separate, or separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote this letter during a winter in Corinth. You may remember that from sessions way back in chapter 1. And he wrote it to the Roman church, obviously, but what they didn't know, that they were just about to be overwhelmed with opposition from their government. You see a start of it in the book of Acts. Claudius kicked the, the, the Jews and the Christians out of Jerusalem, or out of Rome, rather. They went from being a religio licita, have you heard that term? A legitimate religion, to a religio illicita, an illegitimate religion. Tertullian, a second century um, scholar, theologian, came up with those terms. He's also came up with another term. You may have heard of it. It's called Trinity. Tertullian used these terms in the second century to, to describe the legal status of Rome's diverse religious culture. Rome was pretty tolerant of many, many religions. They believed that was a strength. Rome was kind of woke when you get right down to it. Judaism and Christianity were outlawed for a time. I can hardly believe that in the religious culture of our time that our religion, with our moral code of behavior with our tax-exempt status, with our freedom of speech and assembly and religion, will not be subject to the fierceness of radical partisanship. I see it on the horizon. I think this is why I hammer home these doctrines of assurance. We'll need those 
in time to come. It happened to the Romans unawares. It can happen to us. It has been my observation that most societies were blessedly unaware of the fierceness of the onslaught that awaited them. They just didn't know it was coming. Paul told Timothy, in the last days, perilous times will come. And then he went on, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of all kinds of evil, haters of God. He went on and on. Certainly we're in a time like that. John MacArthur commented on this passage. This is what he said. It's not likely that either Paul or the Roman believers realized how short the time would be before they would stand in need of the apostles' comforting words in this passage. And that's what I'm saying to you. We're marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, and those are all good things, all blessings of God. But don't let it dumb us down to what's happening on the horizon. He goes on, MacArthur writes, it would not be many years before they would face fierce persecution from a pagan government and people that now tolerated them with indifference. In other words, Christians weren't loved in society. They were just tolerated. It was a right. It would not be long before the blood of those to whom this epistle is addressed would soak the sands of Roman amphitheaters. You know what he's talking about, right? The Christians were thrown to the beasts and to the gladiators for sport. Let's see if they'll deny Christ now. Some would be mauled by wild beasts, he writes. Some would be slain by ruthless gladiators. Others would be used as human torches to light Nero's garden parties. I'm always amazing how creative evil can be. They said they're the light of the world. Let's make them that. It's interesting that Paul puts death, which is last, first as the enemies. Did you ever wonder about that? He puts death first. I'll go back and read it to you. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Wouldn't you have thought he would have said life or death? It's interesting that he put it that way. As you might have guessed, I have a theory He puts death, which is last, first in his list of enemies. Death, he writes, cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's also interesting that Paul lists life as an enemy of faith. You think about it. Life, though a gift, is also a burden. Friends, life is hard. I don't know if you figured that out yet. Life is hard, and if it isn't, there'll be hard times. It's in this life that all the other tormentors have access to us. Once death comes, it's over. So life can be a problem, right? So if you can be persuaded that neither death, which is the greatest enemy, and life, which is the present enemy, have no power of you, the list becomes academic, right? For all the other forces that align themselves against us are all connected with either life or death. Such things afflict and try and grieve us, but in the end, we are more than conquerors. You know, when I think of that term, more than conquerors, they are living in what was called a Hellenistic world, which means Greek culture. Even though the Romans dispelled the Greeks, they still had Greek language, Greek gods, Greek religion. It was a Hellenized culture is what they called it. And I always think that the one who Hellenized the world, Alexander the Great, is in their thinking as they're speaking the language that they inherited from him and they're worshiping the gods that he worshiped. I always think he's in their mind and he was a great conqueror. Alexander was the greatest. He was the first one to be called the great. He conquered from Sparta to India and everywhere in between. And he created this great empire and at 33 it was said he sat down drunk on a hill and cried to there were no more worlds to conquer and he died of his habits at age 33 and I always thought he's a great conqueror but now that he died his conquering is over and when we die ours is just beginning we are more than conquerors so if you can be persuaded that neither death which is the greatest enemy, and life, which is the present enemy, have no power over you. The list becomes academic. Conquerors, though fearsome, have no power to extinguish faith. Conquerors, though great, are only great in this life. Believers in Christ are literally more than conquerors. Literally more than conquerors. The least, the weakest Christian who dies in faith is greater and has inherited a greater kingdom than the great conquerors of the world. We're more than conquerors. 
This society knows what they mean when they talk about conquerors. They were a conquered nation at that moment. Believers in Christ are literally more than conquerors. Why? Because neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's an old story about Donald Gray Barnhouse. Anybody remember Barnhouse? Barnhouse preceded James Montgomery Boyce at at Eric's former church, <laughs> at First Presbyterian, very famous big church in Philadelphia. And um, Donald Gray Barnhouse had a couple of children, and their mother had died at a very young age. And he was trying to, like preachers do, we always want to, and he was a great preacher, by the way, and he always, we always are searching for an illustration, something that will drive a point home and make it memorable. And he wanted to explain to them that death didn't really hurt their mother. But they were very young, and they're in the car, and they're on the highway. And you ever be on the highway and a big truck goes by next to you? It's so big that you're all of a sudden, it's like you're in the dark. It shaded the sun's light from you, and you're in the dark. You're in the shadow of the truck. And the kids were all noticing, wow, it got dark when that truck went by. And he had his illustration. He said to the kids, would you rather be hit by a truck or by the shadow of a truck? And of course, like the disciples in Jesus' time, they got it right. (laughs) I'll take the shadow any day. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. O Father, in Jesus' name, build our assurance in us through the word of God. And I praise you this morning. For the amens of children, O Lord. Again I say, amen.